How does innovation flourish? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Matt Ridley. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Matt Ridley. With Bachelor of Arts and Doctor of Philosophy degrees from Oxford University, Matt Ridley worked for The Economist for nine years as science editor, Washington correspondent, and American editor, before becoming a self-employed writer and businessman. He was a founding chairman of the International Centre for Life in Newcastle. He was non-executive chairman of Northern Rock and Northern 2 VCT. He also commissioned the Northumberlandia Landform Sculpture and Country Park. He founded the Mind and Matter column in the Wall Street Journal and has been a weekly columnist for The Telegraph and The Times. Matt sits in the House of Lords as a conservative and is a member of the Science and Technology Select Committee. He won the Hayek Prize in 2011 with the Julian Simon Award in 2012 and the Free Enterprise Award from the Institute of Economic Affairs in 2014. Last but not least, he is the author of How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. And that will be the basis of much of our conversation today. Matt, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me on the show. Matt, so in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, how does innovation flourish? And on that note, I think it would be great to start with getting your general thoughts on the nature of innovation. So I'd like to start with how you introduce the readers of your book to thinking about innovation, actually. Uh, you say it's an infinite improbability drive. So first off, what what is that? Give us the background of where that term comes from. And, and secondly, can you define what innovation uh, means using this term? The phrase infinite improbability drive comes from Douglas Adams's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in which there is a spaceship uh, called Heart of Gold, which is powered by an infinite improbability drive, which is obviously a fictional thing. But I make the case in the beginning of my book that actually there is something called an infinite improbability drive here on Earth. Because if you look at the history of human life, it is a question of making more and more improbable structures, uh, from sharpened stones to castles to electric uh, motors to, uh, you know, um, Podcasts, those are improbable things. They are unlikely to come about by chance. They have to be made and they have to be maintained in their improbability, in their complexity, in their order, in their function. Um, and they have to be done so with energy. And energy, putting energy into a system is what enables you to create improbability. And uh, that, I suggest, is the, the heart of the process of innovation, that, that innovators find ways to apply energy to the random atoms of the world in such a way as to reconfigure them into useful structures that can then improve my life and your life uh, in interesting ways. And we're on a grand quest to do that over uh, 200 years in particular, but Two million years, if you take the long, uh, long look. Right. And I also make the case later in the book that there's another improbability drive going on, which is evolution. Uh, that's what evolution does: is it takes the random atoms of the world and reorders them into incredibly complicated things called lizards and fish and brains and 
those kind of things. And again, it does so by harnessing energy. And you can't make uh, a plant without sunlight, and you can't make uh, a lizard without the sunlight that goes into the plant that then goes into the lizard, and so on. So there's a huge similarity between the way nature goes about innovating and the way human society goes about innovating. It harnesses energy to the production of improbable structures. And and later on in the introduction, you continue on that point and say that not only is innovation all around us, just as you were alluding to, but it's one of the least understood concepts on top of that. And this is certainly seems true. Why is that, do you think? Is, is it that people simply don't stop to consider it, that they just hear stories about light bulbs being invented? And as you said, look at the, the wonders of nature around us and say, well, well, great, I guess that happened at some point and then move on. Is, is it just too subtle for people to think about sometimes? Why, why don't more people understand this? No, I, I think it's a genuine failure of scientists. Hmm. Uh, and I would put economists in the same category, to get a good theory of innovation. We have a good theory of natural selection for evolution. We have theories of all sorts of other things. But I would say we don't have a really good theory of why innovation happens and where it does. We don't even have a very good explanation of why it happens to us and not to rabbits or rocks, although I made the case in a previous book that the reason for this is the human habit of exchange. It's not because we've got particularly big brains. It's because we network those brains through exchange. Uh, we swap ideas with each other, and that enables us to create a collective brain that solves problems on a massive scale throughout uh, the human, uh, well, throughout the economy. Um, so, that's a theory of why innovation happens at all to our species, uh, but I'm not sure it's universally accepted yet. Hmm. And as for the theory about, you know, why did it sort of take off in such spectacular fashion uh, around the turn of the 18th century, 300 years ago in the UK, and then keep rolling forward through uh, Germany and California and such places today and into China, um, I don't think we have got particularly good theories about that. Interestingly, Paul Romer uh, got uh, the Nobel Prize for trying to put innovation into economic theory. At least that's my interpretation of what he got it for. Uh, he was saying, look, it's not good enough for economists to just sit around and say, and by the way, innovation happens, which gives us economic growth. <laughs> they should have a theory about why it's happening and where it's happening. And he essentially says that innovation, knowledge is the phrase he uses, uh, comes about because we invest in creating it. It is a product as well as, it is an output as well as an input of the economic system. Um, but even that doesn't quite get us to where we want to go. So to give you an example, we had fantastic innovation in transport technology for most of the 20th century uh, until about 1960, and then it ground to a halt. We saw no improvements in um, the speed at which planes and cars and trains went. Uh, we went to the moon and then we stopped. We had a supersonic airliner and then we cancelled it and right. so on. Uh, but we had very little progress in communication and computing during that time as far as the ordinary consumer was concerned, the you had the telephone in 1900 and you had the telephone in 1960 and there mm -hmm. wasn't really much change. But then between 1960 and today, we've seen ridiculous changes in computing and communication and none, uh, not none, but relatively few in, in transport. Uh, and so why is that? We don't 
we don't have good explanations for that kind of thing. Um, so both at an academic level and at a popular level, I would argue that this immensely important phenomenon of innovation is not fully understood. And then drilling down a little bit more into something you, you just said a little earlier too about this, this idea that people will just say, oh, well, then innovation happened. That's quite true. We do even hear this in, in policy discussions, of course, as you know, right? Is that um, a talking point now for many politicians is, well, well, how do we make sure in innovation happens as if it's sort of a, a lever that you can pull, maybe perhaps money's behind it, where you pull a lever and then you right. throw more money at something and more quote unquote innovation happens. Well, and that that I, th I do uh, have some uh, difficulty with the idea that governments can turn innovation on and off because, mm -hmm. as I say, they haven't fully understood it. And they think they can. I mean, governments on the whole think that what you need to do is feed money to, uh, in the form of grants and subsidies to clever people and innovation will come out the other end of the pipe. I don't think it's quite that simple. I think the limiting factor on innovation is often what people want you to innovate as much as what you're putting in in the way of inputs. And also, I think governments have misunderstood the process of innovation and think it's much more about the, the genius having a brilliant idea and then the rest follows naturally. You know, invent a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. Um, doesn't happen that way. If you look at the stories of innovation, and I tell endless stories in my book, they nearly always, you get the innovation, you get the invention, but then it takes a long time for people to turn that into something that is affordable, practical, and reliable that people will then want to use. So that actually uh, that process, that as it were downstream process of innovation is, is far more important than we think. And a lot of innovation doesn't come out of scientific insights or philosophical breakthroughs. Uh, it comes out of tinkering by engineers. People already have machines, change them a little bit, see if they can make them better, and that makes uh, improvements in them. So I'm seeing it very much as innovation rather than invention. The distinction right. I make there is that invention is having a bright idea, innovation is turning it into something practical, reliable, and uh, affordable. Yeah, and I, have a, and I have a discussion note about that to drill into that a little deeper later, which, which is great. And, and I'd like to maybe perhaps tie in another point I have written down here in to what you were just saying there too, when it comes to, again, the idea that people think they can just flip a switch and innovation happens. Maybe it's about getting the most, uh, what at least society views as the most clever, or most uh, uh, educated people in a room and, and just going to figure out the future. You, you also noted in the book that many innovations on that note do not necessarily come from people with, I think, as you put in the book, stacks of university degrees or or people we would call the most formally educated or, or recognized as honorable in a given era. Um, they, they often come from people who have humble beginnings or at first glance are just an average person. Person. Uh, and, and I really like the way you noted that in the book. So why was that so yeah. important for, for you to note? This is very important for me to note, because I think the way we talk about this subject, particularly as it were in schools, we tend to imply that you've got to be very clever to be an inventor. You know, you're a genius, you're, you're um, uh, Archimedes or, um, uh, you know, someone like that. And that's necessary. And, and th those people are special. They have something called creativity, which other people don't have. That means they are a form of God. Um, whereas actually, if you look at the history of innovation, you get some people from amazingly humble backgrounds with very poor education who, are, who just know how to work hard, do experiments, learn from trial and error, fail fast and recover, uh, change direction, change their minds. 
you know, sort of boring stuff. Mm-hmm. People like Thomas Newcomen, the the inventor of the steam engine, which is an incredibly important uh, machine that probably kick-started the Industrial Revolution. He was a humble blacksmith. He may not even have been literate. George Stevenson, the inventor of the locomotive uh, and the railway system. He doesn't didn't just invent the, the locomotive, but also the railways to go with it, uh, was a was barely literate and was a man of extreme, uh, extremely humble background. And think about Orville and Wilbur Wright, the two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, who invented the aeroplane. And one of the reasons the press kept saying, we don't believe them, they can't have invented an aeroplane, mm. was because they hadn't got degrees. Right. And that really ir- irritates me, actually, because I think that there's a degree of academic snobbery about this topic of innovation that it is worth uh, challenging. Uh, let's let's hear it for the ordinary tinkering engineer who knows how his machine works and thinks he can make it work a bit better, uh, and comes up with a, with a great uh, breakthrough. Let me let me give you another example, though the the development of vaccination. We've no idea who first tried uh, inoculating people with a mild form of the disease to prevent them getting a severer form. But we know that the person who really persuaded Britain and then Europe to take it up was a woman named Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Now, it turns out she was actually rather clever. She was a poet and all that. But she, you know, like many women in those days, she hadn't been particularly well educated. uh, And she just picked up the idea while the wife of the ambassador from London to Constantinople uh, from uh, Ottoman women uh, in the court at Constantinople, uh, brought it back, championed it, worked hard to get it going. She didn't invent it. And moreover, she didn't understand it. It was two centuries before anyone knew why vaccination worked. It's a really, really dangerous idea. Think about Mm -hmm. it. No wonder most doctors in London were furious with her and told her she was a quack and an idiot. What do you mean? You're going to deliberately give your own children smallpox? What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. And you're going to ask the Prince of Wales to, to give his children smallpox? Well, she succeeded, and she protected her own children from smallpox, and she and she persuaded the Prince of Wales to protect his children from smallpox. It's a wonderful story, um, actually. I think because you know, as I say, it's centuries before we know why this works, so we don't have the science behind vaccination for a very long time, but we have it as a technology from the early 18th century. And, and and I do really like the, the point that you made in the book, because as you said, it's not about just getting, for instance, in the 1700s, the, the highest regarded gentlemen of the time and putting them in a room and saying, figure it out, right, as you said. And this goes back, I think, to some of the the, the key uh, classical liberal insights in this area, right, with, with Hayek later on, and even Adam Smith earlier, who commented that it was probably the farmer who actually invented the, the first rude form of the improved like plow, right? Like this, is, it's the people doing this stuff every day that have that knowledge that want to make either their work or their lives a little better that tend to innovate. Or as Steve Jobs yeah. even later said, making the products they want themselves to use and have, it's this right. sort of idea, not just, as you said, th- this quote-unquote genius that'll just solve all our problems. Like uh, Adam Smith d- describes a boy working in a factory who's rigged up a device so that he doesn't have to do a repetitive task every 20 minutes or whatever it is. It does it itself. He gives that as an example of innovation by people who know the the detail, the local picture. Um, and when you think about it, let's say that 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 fix that the boy invented was picked up by other 
machinery designers and was then spread through the system. So mm-hmm. it, it became widespread. That's one of the things that happens in the 18th century, which didn't happen before. So, for example, in the Roman Empire, you could have a, you know, a water mill running fine. It's probably manned by slaves. The chances that those slaves would get their improvements taken up by the designers of the next water mill is probably too small. And that's one of the things that stood in the way of innovation, perhaps in in ancient uh, civilizations. And, and another thing you note is, as a key factor to consider when talking about innovation is the idea that uh, luck drives innovation. I really like this point as well in your book. And that, of course, liberal economies are the ones to, quote unquote, give luck a chance. So, so why is it every, why is it so crucial to pair this idea of, of luck and spontaneity, if you will, with everything we've just been talking about? Well, I think it's a matter of opening up to the possibilities that might come from unexpected directions. The, the word that I like is serendipity because that explains the, the 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 unexpected nature of the solution. That you know you you're trying to solve one problem, in fact you end up solving another, or you're trying to solve it one way, you end up um, solving it a different way. Um, and this happens surprisingly often uh, in the history of innovation. So I t- I tell the stories in the book of uh, Teflon, Kevlar, the Post-it note. All three technologies developed by people looking for something completely different. Uh, the guy, the guys who invented the post-it note at 3M, they were trying to find a permanent glue that worked with paper. Uh, they found a temporary glue that didn't work with paper. And then one of them thought, hang on, I need to keep my place in my hymn book at choir practice. This sticky paper that you can then take out could be quite useful. And he did it on a small pad of yellow paper and post-it note was born. So that's quite a nice example of being open to the unexpected. Now, if you are innovating in such a planned economy system that like the Ming Empire or the Soviet Union, uh, or to a surprising extent, quite a lot of uh, European economies today with the European Union saying what they wish to support in the way of innovation and what they don't, uh, and you you are told you are inventing this and you are doing it in this way, uh, then you aren't open to that possibility of saying, well, I'm afraid I haven't found a way of turning base metal into gold, but I have actually stumbled on a way of making very good porcelain, which is exactly what happened, by the way, to uh, 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 an inventor um, who was uh, trying to, to, who had promised um, uh, that he would solve the alchemy problem, that he could make gold out of other metals. Uh, in fact, he failed at that. But while he was tinkering, he actually found out how to make porcelain as well as the Chinese made it. This was in a place called Meissen, uh, famously in Germany. So th- th- that's I, that's a story I don't tell in the book, but it's the subject of a wonderful book called The Alchemist. And your book does explore many innovations in, in many different sectors and their stories, right? Specifically in energy, public health, transport, computing. That's just to name a few. And of course, we encourage our listeners to check out your book and uh, and, and look at, at, at you know these these specific stories. For the next part of our conversation, I want to focus on to continue to focus on rather some common themes and threads of innovation. And of course, as we go along, as you've been doing, it'd be great if you threw in the stories to, uh, to complement those. Um, and we've talked about some of these threads and, and common themes already. Let's do this one, for instance, that I have noted here, and you've alluded to it before already. You make an important distinction in the book, and this is, as you said, when introducing Thomas Newcomen. You introduce him as an innovator, and you say, 
in the book, quote, notice I do not call him an inventor. The difference is crucial. You touched on it before, but again, can you tell us a little deeper now who Thomas Newcomen was and why is it so important that we don't conflate innovation with invention? Thomas Newcomen was a blacksmith from uh, Cornwall in the southwest of England, who, um, or was it Devon? Anyway, one of those two counties. And he, uh, kind of out of the blue, in 1712, builds a working steam engine that is actually practical to use uh, for the first time. Two other people had been trying to do this, a Frenchman named Denis Papin, who was a great scientist, uh, very well connected, um, had worked with Boyle and Hooke and uh, Leibniz and Christian Huygens and all these great uh, sages of the day. Uh, and he had ideas about how to use steam to drive machinery. Um, and so did a guy called Thomas Savory, about whom we know relatively little, but they both ended up building toys or devices that sort of worked but just weren't practical. And then out of the blue, either influenced by these two and deciding to do it better, a blacksmith from the tin mines in the southwest of England suddenly comes up with uh, a working version of a of a, a steam engine. Now, this is not a locomotive. This is a huge machine the size of a house that can pump water out of a coal mine, and it has about 1% efficiency. But when you've got huge amounts of coal lying around at coal mines, suddenly, actually, it makes sense uh, to use some of it to pump the water out because horse-drawn pumps were not very good at the job. Now, that might seem a really trivial invention of no great significance for the rest of the world, let alone the consumer himself. But actually, what's key is that this is the first time that we can consistently and reliably turn heat into work. Because before that, we have heat, we have coal and wood, and we have work, we have oxen and people and wind and water, but there's no connection between them. And in fact, nobody at the time would have thought of them as two sides of the same coin. They're both forms of energy, but that's not what people would have thought at the time. We would have thought of a completely different thing. If you want work, you've got to find, you know, you've got to, you've got to work. If you want heat, you've got to have heat. But he's saying, no, I can use heat and make it turn into work. It's the steam from the burning the burning coal boiling the water that then creates a vacuum when you cool the steam down, which sucks the machine up, uh, sucks the piston up, and that draws water out of the well. Um, so uh, that then goes on to power everything that follows. And today, your and my lives are made possible largely by the conversion of heat into work, whether that's uh, in a coal-fired, gas-fired, or oil-fired machine, um, which provides 85% of our energy, those three sources do, or a nuclear device. The only exceptions are hydro, wind, and solar, um, which are not, on the whole, uh, using that technology. Uh, but nonetheless, these this, this, this turning of heat into work is terribly important. So back to your point about the difference between invention and innovation, Newcomen may or may not have been the first to have this, well, may have not have built the first sort of working machine, but he certainly didn't have the first idea in this. But he really knew how important it was to turn it into a, a practical device that people on the ground could use. And again and again, I think this is very important. There's a very funny story told by Charles Towns, the inventor of the laser, where he says there's a rabbit and a beaver looking at the Hoover Dam. And the beaver is saying to the rabbit, no, I didn't build it, 
but it is based on an idea of mine. <laughs> and all too often, we, we, we sort of sympathize with the inventor whose idea is then taken up by other people and exploited and explored, and he gets none of the credit. Actually, I'm trying to reverse that. I'm trying to say a lot of the credit needs to go to the people who, who take um, basic ideas and turn them into reliable and practical things. Let me give you a more modern example mm -hmm. of, of an innovator. Jeff Bezos. Okay, now, I don't think anyone would claim that he's a great inventor. Uh, I don't think even he would. Um, but when you think of what he has achieved through Amazon in terms of turning online retail into something that actually works for most of us today very seamlessly, but which didn't work very well to start with, uh, I think that's a really important part of innovation. And along the way, there are clever little things like one-click ordering or um, whatever whatever devices they have in Amazon warehouses to make sure that that, um, uh, you know, I ordered a book and a um, insect repellent yesterday. Uh, they both arrived in the same packet today. I don't quite understand how that's even possible, um, let alone reliable right uh, yet somewhere along the line someone's done a lot of innovating probably of a very boring kind to achieve that and i'm not suggesting bezos did it himself but i'm suggesting that he did preside over a system that caused that to happen and that's innovation even if it's not invention and and on that note as well another idea that comes up when people talk about innovation another term i should say and, and you hear this a lot it's a buzzword is disruption and, and that innovation is, is disruptive and and you note that this term is also a, a misleading one that that these changes are often gradual and take time to ramp up no one invents something or or rather innovates and and creates a new process or, or company and then all of a sudden the next day everyone's on board or, or the world has changed uh, overnight yeah i i think it was clayton christensen who who first pointed out that innovation can be very disruptive it can it can blow hold industries out of the water it can change the way we live uh, and that's true but when you look at it more closely it doesn't happen overnight there's a huge preparatory period during which that innovation is gathering strength ready to do its disruption let's take video conferencing for example what you and i are doing at the moment mm -hmm. which is talking online that's been around for 20 years um it's in clunky forms. It's been possible to do a video call uh, for to have an online meeting, but almost nobody's done it until this pandemic comes along. So it looks immensely disruptive now because it's 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 changing. It's you know people are going to stop renting offices in city centres or whatever. You know, we'll see. That may or may not happen. But the, the, my my point is, if it if this does turn out to be a disruptive moment for that technology. We might end up in 20 years' time forgetting about the fact that it didn't arrive on a starship at right. the beginning of 2020. Uh, it was around from the late 1990s onwards, getting slowly better, but not much use when nobody else had it. You know, uh, if you said to someone six months ago, do you have Zoom? They would say, I don't know what you're talking about. And so actually you didn't bother saying that, and so there wasn't a critical mass of us who had it and so on. Um, so I think that's quite, a, quite an important way of seeing what looks like disruption happening much more gradually. And, you know, Moore's law is the most disruptive thing of the last 50 years. That is to say the shrinkage of transistors and the shrinkage of the price of computing. Incredibly disruptive but amazingly gradual, because that's the whole point of Moore's law. He says that it'll double, computers will double in efficiency every two years. 
roughly speaking. I mean, he changed the, the 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 details of what he says changed a bit, but that's roughly the thing. And they have for fifty years. Right. Well, how come if we knew that in 1964 when he wrote down Moore's law, Gordon Moore, I'm talking about, how come we weren't able to say right if we're going to get by the year 2000, we're going to get to so and so? Why don't we do that now? And I don't know why we, you know, it's quite hard to understand why we didn't do it now. The answer is because you had to make uh, the, the the next level of technology to get to the next one, to get to the next one. It moved to the adjacent possible, which is a phrase borrowed from evolution, by the way, uh, which gives you an idea of how these disruptive changes work. And somewhere along the line, it produced computing so good that it blew Kodak out of existence because digital photography came along. But it was a gradual process, Moore's Law, that did it. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take a quick break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Ridley today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Andy Crooks, and Bryce Tingle. As always, remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Ridley today. So, so Matt, before the break, we were talking about a lot of consistent themes and, and threads that we find when we explore stories of innovation and what innovation entails. One thing right before the break we were talking about, of course, was you did bring up the example of Zoom. And I thought that was an excellent point in terms of innovation uh, being gradual, because you're right. I did. I have seen headlines since the pandemic started about, you know, Zoom is disrupting the way meetings are done and Zoom is disrupting the world. And when, you know, you're right, in 20 years from now, maybe we look back at the New York Times, who does create history in many ways and say, wow, look what happened 20 years ago. But, but in reality, it's true. I can remember 10, 15 years ago, there were still different types of video conferencing you can do. The question of, of whether or not the stuff actually became a, uh, an issue of critical mass and enough people using it, that's a, that's a whole thing unto itself. So I thought that was a very interesting point is we, we forget how subtle this is. There's another aspect to it, which I write about in the book, which I, I'm, I'm very interested in. And I, I actually tracked down the originator of this, this concept because he was, he's not well known and his name didn't get attached to it. And my, my job is to attach his name to it. A guy named Roy Amara, about the same time that Gordon Moore was coining his law, he said, we underestimate the impacts of new technologies in the long run, but we overestimate them in the short run. Right. And I think that's amazingly true when you think about it. You know, 20 years ago, Bill Clinton gave a speech saying, we've just sequenced the human genome for the first time. This means the end of cancer, means curing all disease, means we'll never see the world the same again. Actually, the last 20 years, I've seen some modest medical advances, but they've been immensely disappointing by that standard. And yet now we are seeing genomics deliver pretty rapidly. Likewise, you know, 25 years ago, you could still write an article. Quite a lot of people did and got egg on their face. Paul Krugman famously said uh, the impact of the Internet on the economy is going to be no greater than the fax machine. Um, And a lot of people were saying this online retail thing is – is not going to work. It's it's uh, it's overblown. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> going to be okay for a few things, but it's not going to displace shops and things like that. And for the next ten years, you could probably go on thinking that. But then, in the next ten years after that, you could not think that. So, te- innovation doesn't happen in a linear fashion. It doesn't 
move steadily into society, even though it's gradual. It moves very slowly and then moves very fast and then slows down again once it's there. So it's more S-shaped, the curve. And, and shifting gears a little bit too, and this goes back to something you did allude to before, which is this idea that innovation is, is more like a team sport rather than just some mad genius in his basement, right? And uh, and and I really like that idea. As we were saying before, sometimes there's this idea that there's a quote-unquote an innovator and, and they're the ones do, doing everything. And, and I'm re- actually personally reminded when I read this in your book at this point of a, of a conference that I saw Steve Jobs and Bill Gates do. This is sort of like a semi-famous one where they both actually sat down together at a digital conference in in Silicon Valley. And, and, and Steve actually made the point when the interviewers were talking to them. That in a way, he said, well, he's like me and Bill, and in effect, we're stand-ins for all the great teams we've worked with and, 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 the, and the things we've driven into the future. And I just it, it, that, that moment in, in my brain hit me at the same time as I was reading the part in your book is that we have to remember that, as you said, like this innovation idea is more like a team sport, right? It's not mad genius stuff in a basement all the time. That's right. And uh, even when uh, it's a rel- you, can, you know, can identify one person as making one breakthrough, actually you'll find it's the person who has consulted other people, who has drawn upon the experiences of, of other people, who's talked to people outside their field. That's quite important. I get, I've, I've talked before about how the pill camera is my favorite idea of what I call ideas having sex and you know ideas meeting and mating and having baby ideas. And the, the pill camera came about after a conversation over a garden fence between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer. Um, that's a really nice <laughs> example of, a, of, of two people from very different fields putting their heads together. And to, to be serious for a minute, there's a site called Inocentive where you can go and post a problem, that a technological problem that you've got that you want people to solve for you and reward them for solving it. And the solutions often come from people outside the field uh, that the problem is in, uh, surprisingly often. So to be open to other people in other areas is very important. So it's not just a matter of a team. It's also a matter of a network uh, of, of other people. And the best example of getting it right and getting it wrong in innovation that I tell in the book is the the story of the two people, two teams developing airplanes in 1903. Samuel Langley, uh, brilliant astronomer, very well connected, head of the Smithsonian, um, has a huge grant from the US government to build an airplane because he says he can do it. So he goes off and does it in secret, tells nobody what he's doing, unveils the whole thing in one swoop. Um, Swoop is the right word. It falls straight into the Potomac River and crashes. Uh, Ten days later, on an island off North Carolina, two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, who have spent years and years building gliders, talking to people who've built gliders, talking to people who've studied the flights of birds, doing experiments in wind tunnels themselves, um, uh, networking like fury with everybody in the world who's interested in flight, but also who's interested in lightweight engines or whatever it might be, and have gradually put the pieces together um, till they have a uh, working flying machine and they get it right and Samuel Langley gets it wrong. I've already told their story as an example of of the snobbery of uh, invention. And indeed, when the Smithsonian came to do the Air and Space Museum, they kind of left the the rights out of the story and they they falsified Langley's story to make it sound like he had invented the first flying machine because although his didn't work, actually, if he'd made some adjustments, it would have worked. 
they were eventually called on that by one of the Wright brothers who said, come on, this is ridiculous. Right. And in 1948, they did, through gritted teeth and reluctantly, put the Wright brothers' flyer in the Air and Space Museum. Right. And I think, again, that sort of goes back to that st- that story, that joke that you told about, about the beaver, beaver looking at the dam, right? Is that some, oftentimes, you know, we want to, like you and I, for instance, we could probably brainstorm for another couple hours, come up with some great things on a whiteboard. And then if someone else a couple days later, uh, maybe thought of the same concept or heard us talking about it, actually put two and two together in other areas and maybe took it off the whiteboard and into reality, we might actually beg some of our colleagues and our contemporaries for some sympathy about the fact that you and I came up with it in the meeting room. But until it's actually applied and actually driven somewhere, this is where the, the rubber hits the road, right? Sam, Samuel Morse is a good example of that. He was an artist, a very successful artist, uh, and he was on a ship from France to America, and he was talking to a, uh, a physicist. And they, they started talking about whether you could send messages down electric wires. And uh, he, he went back and s- did some experiments. And within a few years, he'd built a working electric telegraph. Enormous number of experiments went into it. He got a lot of things wrong, etc. He had to work incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he found that trying to bury the cables underground was too difficult. He had to string them from poles, etc., etc. You know, I mean, it, it, it was a long story. But the guy he talked to on the ship then sued him and said, how dare you steal my idea and turn it into an invention? Well, who's done all the work? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. the idea, putting a message down a wire, the idea is easy. It's how you make it happen, how you turn, how you invent a telegraph that's difficult. And actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about intellectual property a bit later because well, that'll, that's kind of a bit of yes. a related point to the conversation. But I'll, but I'll park that for now because I did want to move to something else first. And we touched on it at the beginning of our conversation, the first half. But it, it, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the merit again of this idea of of industrial policy and, and directed innovation. And again, we talked about it a little bit before. We said governments think they can create innovation, following plans, policies, funding the geniuses, fun, funding the most qualified people. Uh, so, so they see it. Um, and and it you know it, it struck me as I was uh, you know setting up for for this discussion with you and, and reading your book that you know pe- people who side with let's just call it, generally speaking this the system of capitalism right often make uh, their Soviet jokes but, but as you sort of allude to in other areas and and also uh, I want to say now is that you know the Soviet Union wasn't full of idiots right there was a lot of smart scientists mathematicians people that were commanded and directed by bureaucrats to go and invent the future, right? To, to go and solve these these tough problems. Uh, perhaps absent there in many cases was the freedom to innovate and actually have that that luck or, or chance hit them in the right area. So that might have been the missing ingredient. But but all, all that to say, again, this idea that a government can direct innovation, I think it deserves a little bit more attention and critique because this doesn't necessarily mean you have stupid people that it can't accomplish something. It's this idea of if we're directing innovation, is it innovation at all anymore? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because the Soviet Union, as you say, had spectacular education. It had really good... Um, mathematicians uh, and so on and it, uh, it 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 put science on a bit of a pedestal and it expected to get a lot of innovation out of that mm-hmm. it, it did the supply pretty well but it did, did the demand appallingly um, so I think the the freedom that, that was most missing in the Soviet Union was the freedom of the consumer to express his wishes for washing machines rather than nuclear missiles for example, that's a good <laughs> and one. there's the, fa- <laughs> the famous moment when you know Richard Nixon confronts uh, Khrushchev at an, ex- uh, at an uh, expo in 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 um, 
uh, Moscow uh, and gets this lecture off Khrushchev about how backward America is and we've invented Sputnik, etc. And I can't remember what Nixon replied, but it was something along the lines of, yeah, but what about washing machines, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is quite a good point. But, but sort of more generally, you're, you, you, I, I, the, the idea that, that innovation is the province of government because no one else will do it, which you often hear. You know, there's not enough reward in it, inventing things, so government's got to fund it. Well, how come you can explain the fact that American government funded almost no R&D before the Second World War, uh, and yet it was one of the most innovative societies in that period? Britain, similarly, funded much less R&D than Germany and France Mm. uh, right through the 19th and early 20th centuries, and yet was more innovative than either. Um, so uh, it all the technologies like vaccination or railways or uh, electricity that come out of the 19th century, none of them owe anything to government. Right. I mean, government had to do some things to make railways happen, like sort of pass the laws to say you could buy up the land to put a railway on, but they didn't do anything to support the invention of, of locomotives or, or rail lines. So... Um, uh, so the idea that suddenly, from the middle of the 20th century onwards, it becomes necessary for government to do innovation because no one else is going to do it, is nonsense, clearly. Um, uh, the fact that government is taking 40% of the, of the uh, money out of the economy every year uh, is relevant here, because when it was only taking 10%, it didn't matter that it wasn't putting any of it back into innovation but when it's taking 40 percent of it away it jolly well better do some innovation with that 40 percent because otherwise it's starving the economy of investment in innovation so thank god that thank god it does put money into the internet's precursor at darpa and things like that um uh, and and i you know that's why i'm in favor of funding science and funding innovation uh, from government but please don't don't do it because you think no one else will do it. Do it because the government owes a favor to the rest of the economy. It's given it all this money. It would like some of it back to invest in innovation, which can improve people's lives. It becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. People don't have enough uh, cash or extra time or, 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 or funds to do some innovation. Well, we should first ask who's been taking some of that money that, uh, that otherwise yeah, could and, have been spent. Myths are told about you know how nothing would have happened without DARPA. Well, actually, the computing industry's big boost from DARPA came when a lot of people left DARPA because they were fed up with the way it was just interested in defense projects and went off into the private sector and set up Xerox Park and other such organizations where they did uh, much more consumer-orientated electronics. And actually picking up on that point, uh, because uh, that, that's one of the next things I want to talk about, is that it's not only big government that might be bad at innovation so, uh, most often. You also note in, in the book that we even see this with big companies, and here we're talking huge companies, right? That they often can be terrible at innovation for, for exactly the same reasons. They get weighed down by bureaucracy and decision-making about things other than the product it, it itself. And, uh, and then, so I thought that was very interesting as well. I remember I read this article one time, I forget which year it was, but it was within the last seven years that uh, Apple and Google spent more time with each other in intellectual property court and more fees on lawyers than they did spending on R&D in one year, like you saw that in the balance sheet, which is a, a bit of a joke in itself. That's fascinating. I can believe it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's a pretty iron law. As soon as you get above 
I don't know, 200, 400 employees or something, you stop being innovative. It's not, you know, it's it's not an iron law. You know, I, I just made the case that Amazon is still a pretty innovative company. But I, I asked Bezos once, how does he manage to keep Amazon innovative? And he told me stories about how he makes sure that um, wacky ideas still reach the top of the company and get considered, even if everyone thinks they're a bad idea. So he's he's built mechanisms to prevent the tyranny of the status quo getting in the way. Nokia is a very nice example of this. Nokia is, a, is an extraordinary story. It's a, basically a, a, a Finnish manufacturer of forestry products like boots and walkie-talkies for people cutting down trees in northern forests, who then realized that because they're quite good at walkie-talkies, they might see if they can't invest in mobile telephones. They get really good at it. They end up by far the biggest mobile phone company in the world, by being open to uh, you know the opportunity that was suddenly there in the early 1990s, really. Um, uh, and then they lose it all again, and they become a small dud company. Um, why? Basically because they didn't believe in data. They thought it was all about voice. They had a huge vested interest in voice telephones. And so... They just didn't want to eat their own lunch. They didn't want to, to destroy their own business, which they'd have had to do if they got good at data too. They weren't helped by the European Union having passed a standard which was good for voice and bad for data. Um, so they, the smartphone blew them out of the water, essentially. Um, so that's quite a quick cycle. You know, That's a company that goes from being small and obscure to being brilliantly successful and then it, while it still thinks of itself as an insurgent company, actually it's too big to innovate and it dies. Right. Well, it doesn't quite die, but it's taken over by someone else. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and we were talking about uh, sort of the, the middle of the 20th century there. I think another good example is IBM, for instance, as we were talking about computing before, is that this was supposed to be uh, like, you know, the post-World War II giant, right? The, these were This was the, the interna you, international business machines company, right? Like you weren't going to get a computer uh, anywhere anywhere else than, uh, than, than a forklift delivery from this company, right? That right. this was the future. But uh, in, in reality, uh, you know, a, a bunch of kids in Silicon Valley and blue jeans were the ones that actually challenged a variety of these norms. And it'll it'll happen again. It'll happen to Google. It'll happen to, to Facebook. You know, they'll be blown out the water by guys in jeans, not by big competitors. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's something as we were talking about some t things being lost to the history of innovation sometimes that I, I hope we, we don't lose that part of the story too, right? As we talk about governments wanting to fund innovation and a lot of this stuff becomes buzzword and policy discussion rather than understanding back to our main thread, what innovation really entails, it's allowing these kids in blue jeans to work on this stuff. And and uh, on that point, there is a worrying trend, which I write about towards the end of the book, which I use it to explain what I call the innovation famine, mm -hmm. which is that the turnover of companies in has slowed down in the last 20 years. Actually, you're not getting big companies knocked off their pedestal by small companies to the same extent as you used to. We think that's still happening because we think of Google and so on as being recent uh, insurgents. But if you look at most other sectors, it's just not happening. Right. And one of the reasons is because through cronyism, through favors from government, mm -hmm. big companies can maintain their position, also through intellectual property, which I know we're going to talk about. Um, but also globalization, funnily enough, has at least uh, this is an argument made by um, uh, Frederick Ericsson uh, in Sweden. Um, globalization has given 
big companies a way of holding on to their oligopolistic um, fiefdoms uh, in a way that that is slightly surprising. So it's just that much harder if you're a small local company to break into the monopoly of someone like an Amazon or a Google uh, these days. And particularly if governments come along and pass something like the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, which is you know, which is that thing whereby you have to sort of uh, ex- say you're happy to have your information collected by the company or whatever when you go onto a website. Well, that has clearly resulted in more of the market being captured by the big boys than the small boys. I mean, it, you can see it in the statistics. It's a barrier to entry uh, because regulations like that are always easier for big companies to cope with than little companies. If, if, uh, if a government introduces a regulation that might cost every business, let, let's just say for, for whatever reason, $100,000 over the course of the year to comply with, uh, we, we know who can afford that. Who, who is that chump change to versus perhaps the whole business can't even survive, right? There's obviously difference Correct. in scale there. Correct. Um, and, and you did mention intellectual property. So yeah, why don't we un- unpack that now? I know that we could probably do a full, whole hour on intellectual property, so we don't want to cheapen the discussion by any means. But with the little time we do have left here, let's at least touch on it, right? So, and as you note in your book, even if one were to grant the validity of intellectual property on principle to some degree, so let's just grant that for now, uh, you may have been good in theory from the start, the way some courts and laws went about it. Uh, as you were alluding to, we may be at a point where the laws and the stacks of regulations and then the way patents and the copyrights work is actually a hindrance to innovation at this point. And that we might be seeing that actually c- come to fruition. As you said, uh, Google is cited as a recent example, but every year that goes by, it's less and less recent as a, as a trailblazing company, is it not? Right, exactly. Well, um, it, it's simply an empirical question. Does intellectual property encourage innovation or not? Now, If it does, we'll be able to go out there and find countries that don't have good intellectual property regimes and therefore don't have much innovation. And we'll be able to find countries that do have good, uh, that strengthen their intellectual property and get more innovation. And study after study cannot find this. They find that countries that strengthen their their intellectual property um, don't see a blip in innovation, uh, and countries that don't have much intellectual property, like you know, many European countries up till really quite recently in the 19th century, for example, had plenty. The Netherlands, for example, had very poor intellectual property and very good innovation for a long time. Um, so it, that, it's in that sense a, a straight empirical question. And Alex Tabarrok and uh, Brink Lindsay and people like this have been looking at why this is, saying, well, you know, surely on the on the parallel with physical property, and you know, we uh, free market people are dead in favour of property rights, aren't we? Surely, intellectual property is just another form of property. Well, it's not. It's crucially different because the whole point is you want to share it. You know, you're not you're not trying to keep other people out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're, tra- you're trying to share it. But more and more, people are using intellectual property as a profit centre in itself. Um, they set up the so-called patent trolls, which are companies that go out buying up patents in order to make money out of people who trespass on them, not in order to make money out of making the product. <laughs> um, so actually, that's, and there's a very close parallel with, with copyright, which is the other form of intellectual property, um, where uh, bullied by lobbying from the Disney Corporation, as far as I can make out, countries around the world have lengthened copyright on written works to 70 years after the death of the author. What's that all about? Right, right. 
I think it started out just as life, like as soon as they died, the copyright was released, then it was 10, something like that. And they've made it that you don't have to assert it. It's asserted automatically. They've made it much easier. Now, as an author, I should like that, you know. But, you know, that means my grandchildren, possibly even my great-grandchildren, might get a check from my publishers towards the end of this century because copies of my book are still selling, let's hope. You know, we can dream. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, what on earth did they do to deserve that? I mean, that's <laughs> let them go out and get a job instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it becomes sort of a cost-benefit thing. Yes, you're great, and perhaps even who knows how far far Disney pushes. Maybe your great great grandchildren are getting a check for the book. But what that is is means is not happening on the other side of the coin. Is people aren't able to you know freely share that information, republish it, right? Like a lot of the things we we you and I probably both enjoy reading are in public domain. So and, and there is value in that. And and when you take that out of literature and into invention and intellectual property, same principle applies. Look what's happened in music. You know mm-hmm. files sharing apps in music uh, were hugely resisted, of course, by the music industry, famous suits against Napster and all that kind of thing. And uh, a huge intellectual property battle. Eventually, freedom wins. The pirates, as it were, take over the sea. Uh, Basically, people have stopped trying to enforce copyright in music uh, to anything like the same extent that they used to. Does that mean that nobody's writing songs anymore? I don't think so. I think there's plenty of songwriting still going. That's an excellent example. I remember the huge moral panic over that, even in my lifetime, right? And I remember people were starting to, uh, because everyone started getting their own YouTube channel, so just regular people like me uh, and and you were just like, you know, throwing up, if we weren't the artists, that is to say, you know, we're just throwing up music we liked on YouTube, and there's a huge industry panic about people just can't share music the way they want on YouTube, and and all of a sudden you skip ahead 10 years, and uh, the world didn't end. YouTube figured out a way to monetize itself as a Matter of fact, now the biggest publishers of music online are the publishers themselves. So everyone figured out how to live with the internet and the new platforms. It wasn't a, it wasn't as much of a crisis uh, as it was made out to be. And I guess the last point I want to say as our time winds down here and we're almost out of it before we do the formal wrap up is you mentioned the innovation famine, and I, I don't want to make it sound too simple, but is the uh, is the solution to the innovation famine just at more of what we've been talking about, the more, more freedom, more luck, giving luck a chance. Is, is that really what this all comes down to? It's lots of different things, but the underlying theme of those different things is freedom. The freedom of the consumer to express his wishes, the freedom of the producer to uh, satisfy those wishes, the freedom of the inventor to change his mind, change direction, uh, to pull in ideas from unexpected directions, etc. Um, it's It's wherever you look in history, freedom encourages innovation. Freedom to trade, freedom to invest, freedom to buy, freedom to sell. These are the the freedoms that we need if we're to have innovation. And even counterexamples, like people say to me, yeah, well, what about China? China's not free and it's very inventive at the moment. And I say, yeah, China is free or has been free until recently uh, in the last 30, 40 years, as long as you're not trying to be a political innovator. I mean, if you want to start a new political party, good luck to you. But if you want to do anything else, actually, you face far fewer bureaucratic obstacles than an innovator in the West. If you want to build a new factory or uh, get license a new product, et cetera, et cetera, you get much quicker decisions out of out of the, the state in China. So in that sense, you're freer. Um, that may be coming to an end because I think Xi Jinping uh, is not a freedom-loving fellow. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> it's not just political freedom, it's economic freedom that he's now um, cracking down on. Uh, and that, I'm afraid, will kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. And I'm 
pretty sure that in 10 or 20 years' time, China will not be an innovative place anymore, and someone else will have to do the heavy lifting of inventing the next apps and video games and gene editing uh, devices and nuclear powers. My money's on India, as it happens. I think it's an exciting, innovative country. Right, if it right. can sort out its infrastructure and um, its corruption, then uh, the world is its oyster. Well, our time is certainly completely wound down here, so let's head to our formal wrap-up. Matt, uh, in, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me say, we, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. So, so let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on the nature of innovation and how it flourishes? If we can leave a listener with one or two or possibly in three high-level takeaways from everything we've talked about today, what do you want to leave them with? I want to leave them with the idea that innovation is a fascinating topic, that it's not the same as invention, that it relies hugely on freedom uh, and that it's something we need to understand much better because it will bring prosperity if we allow it to and it won't if we don't. Excellent. Let's leave it at that. Matt Ridley, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Alex, thank you for having me on the show. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>